there's a good chance that you've heard the name Werner von Braun. He is, after all, one of the most controversial figures of the 20th century. Born in Germany in 1912, by the time he was in his 20s, von Braun was proving to be one of the country's most brilliant and most dangerous minds. Though he didn't show much interest in math as a young student, things changed when he discovered the emerging field of rocketry. Fascinated by the prospect of space travel, he'd go on to become obsessed with the mechanisms and the science that could take humanity beyond our planet. But as Hitler's Nazi party rose to power in the early 1930s, he turned his attention from conquering space to conquering Europe. An acclaimed aerospace engineer, Von Braun would help develop the V-2 rocket, a devastatingly effective long-range missile that the Nazis would use to kill thousands in their failed quest to take over the Western world. But despite being a member of one of history's most evil regimes, when the war turned in favor of the Allies, the American government saw an opportunity. They launched what's become known as Operation Paperclip, a covert program that sought to recruit their enemies' most notorious thinkers and turn them into public servants for the United States government. Von Braun took the deal, and he began working for the U.S. military before going on to become a key figure in NASA's Apollo program. And he soon became one of the country's foremost minds with expertise in aerospace, engineering, mathematics, physics, and advanced weaponry. By the time the early 1970s rolled around, he was a critical figure in the U.S. military apparatus. It was here where he would have another encounter with another notable young foreign military official that would leave him, one of the world's most notoriously gifted minds, completely baffled. I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. This is Hiding Something. Season 2, Ultra, Chapter 2, Hidden Knowledge It was 1972 when Werner von Braun was introduced to Yuri Geller. Just to catch up from last episode, Geller was a former Israeli paratrooper who possessed an odd set of skills. Geller was known to be able to, allegedly, manipulate electronic equipment using only his mind, do seemingly impossible, quote, mind-reading tricks, and bend metal with his mental powers. Even though the Israeli military was somewhat unimpressed with their soldiers' odd skill set, the public loved it. After leaving the military, Geller grew out his wavy, Beatles-inspired locks and took to the nightclubs of Tel Aviv, blowing minds with his ever-developing show of seemingly unexplainable skills. It was there where he caught the eye of covert CIA agents who believed that if they could focus Geller's odd abilities, they could revolutionize the world of spycraft. After all, this was a man who seemed to be able to read minds and view far-off happenings simply by thinking about them. The CIA was able to convince Geller to come to the United States for a series of highly classified experiments testing the limits of his abilities. It was at this point, when meeting with intelligence officials, that he was introduced to one of the government's most important figures, Werner von Braun. At the time, von Braun was a towering figure in the Defense Department apparatus, and if his background, working for two opposing superpowers is any indication, his predisposition leaned more towards emotional detachment from ideologies, and instead seemed to favor imperial evidence. This is, after all, a man who helped build the most sophisticated rockets the world had ever seen. But. The encounter left Von Braun baffled. Geller had Von Braun take off his wedding ring, place it in his own hand, and without ever touching it himself, Geller somehow bent the metal object. 
Von Braun would later tell reporters, Geller has bent my ring in the palm of my hand without ever touching it. Personally, I have no scientific explanation for this phenomena, end quote. In 1974, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Francine Duplat-Gray visited Geller in his Manhattan home to discuss the work of the United States government and see Geller's strange abilities firsthand. Gray was not as impressed by Geller's metal-bending demonstrations, essentially writing them off as sleight-of-hand tricks. But then came time for Geller to show off his seemingly telepathic abilities. The casual experiments they conducted in Geller's New York City apartment were similar to the ones he had conducted at Stanford with the CIA, which we discussed last episode. I'm going to have a voice actress read a portion of Gray's story, which ran in the New York Times in the summer of 1974 under the title, quote, From Outer to Inner Space, the craze to explore the mystic areas of consciousness by reason and by hoax. Here's a portion of that New York Times story. Our telepathic drawings were considerably more dramatic. He said, I'll turn around and close my eyes and you draw something. Then say, ready. Then I'll concentrate on it and try to duplicate it. He turned his back to me, facing 57th Street. I drew a sailboat with a small flag at the stern, bobbing on a wavy sea. Ready, I said, folding my notebook on my lap. He turned around and drew for about a minute. We lifted our doodles up in the air to compare them. He had drawn two pictures, one of a small tugboat on a wavy sea and another of a flag rising out of the water. Fantastic, Yuri yelled. A half hour later, he said, Now you turn around and close your eyes, and I'll draw, and you receive it. When Yuri finished drawing, he put the page down on the sofa between us. I doodled as instinctively as I could, coming up with a bird, a short, stubby snake shape, and a daisy. Fantastic, Yuri bellowed again, holding up his page. You are psychic, he said. He had, quote, sent me a bird extremely resemblant to mine and a moon crescent strikingly resemblant to my snake. The last experiment left me puzzled, for only I could have been cheating. Like Von Braun, the experience left her baffled because she knew about the controversy surrounding Geller. Part of the reason Geller ended up in the United States was because his reputation in his native Israel had become tarnished. It had been revealed that during his stage shows, helpers were actually writing down the license plate numbers of guests, later feeding them to Geller so that he could make it appear that he had somehow conjured the knowledge. He was also the subject of the book The Truth About Yuri Geller by the late skeptic and professional debunker James Randi. Randi regularly recreated and explained the alleged illusions behind some of Geller's feats. For his part, Geller would later explain that sometimes his abilities simply didn't work like other times, and he's been known to inject a degree of showmanship into his demonstrations. However, the CIA still seemed at least somewhat convinced that Geller was capable of unexplainable things, writing at one point after working with him that, quote, As a result of Geller's success in this experimental period, we consider that he has demonstrated his paranormal perceptual ability in a convincing and unambiguous manner, end quote. The differing results of Geller's exploits have two explanations. The first is what Geller seems to suggest, that doubt creates some sort of negative energy which clouds his abilities, and that if people he is performing for bring that doubt to the table, his experiments are more likely to fail. However, there's another explanation for his inconsistencies. People believe what they want to believe, and they're willing to suspend their own suspicions, meaning they're more likely to be fooled. Either Geller is on to something with his ideas about some kind of mysterious collective energy, or people are simply highly suggestible and are willing to accept seemingly outrageous things if they want to believe them bad enough. One of the greatest examples of the tension at the root of these ideas is Geller's infamous appearance on The Tonight Show in 1973. 
Then-host Johnny Carson had a background in magic and was a consummate showman himself. According to Geller, Carson invited him onto the show for an interview, but when the cameras turned on, Carson revealed that he wanted Geller to perform live. In Carson's mind, if Geller wasn't able to prepare, then he could expose him as a fraud. Carson even got James Randi to secretly prepare the setup. Here's Randi explaining the setup in a YouTube documentary about the incident, along with a clip of the actual appearance. Johnny had been a magician himself and was skeptical. I was asked to help prevent any trickery. Nice to see you. Thanks. We um, we this, have only met. This scares me. This, this scares you. Well, this yeah. is just, we just got some things together here. And I told I them said, to provide their own props and not to let Geller or his I, people anywhere uh, near them. Also, one of our staff members uh, did some drawings which have been sealed in an envelope. Uh, and I'd like you to take your own pace when you feel like you want to try anything. Right. Do you want to try that particular uh, experiment first? When I'll feel for it. When okay. you sure. As you can probably tell in his voice, Geller was caught off guard. And when it came time to perform, things didn't go so well. You know, I'm surprised because before this program, your producer came and he read me at least 40 questions you're going to ask me. Well, I can uh, ask you all kinds of questions if you'd like, if you'd like me to ask no, you I questions. To, I have to have time. And, uh, um, After that awkward exchange, they cut to commercial, but things didn't get any better for Geller when they returned. However, after an excruciating 20 minutes of failing to perform Carson's task, something unexpected happened. Afterward, Geller got even more popular, and the next day, he was booked on the Merv Griffin Show, where, in front of a friendly audience and host, he was able to do many of the things that he's become famous for. Was this the result of strange energy fields and abilities we don't understand? Or is it simply having a suggestible audience see things they want to see? And if there's so much uncertainty about people like Geller and their abilities, how did he and others become psychic spies for the government? To understand how the CIA got to this point, conducting experiments with a controversial stage performer, we have to go all the way back to the late 1930s. At the same time that Von Braun was working to understand the emerging field of rocketry, nearby, his countryman Heinrich Himmler was rising to power within the Nazi party. Any objective view of history would put Himmler on a short list of the most evil men ever to live. He masterminded the Holocaust, he was openly an extreme racist, and he was horrifically violent. He was also fascinated with the idea of, quote, hidden knowledge. That's the core principle of much of occultism, that there are hidden forces that can be understood, or in some cases, conjured, that can make people capable of unexplainable things. Himmler's vision was to be able to find this knowledge and then weaponize it. And as a powerful official within Hitler's Nazi party, he was quickly accumulating the power, wealth, and violent force he would need on his quest. Acclaimed journalist Annie Jacobson writes about his search in her incredible book, Phenomena, The Secret History of the U.S. Government's Investigation into Extrasensory Perception and Psychokinesis. If you're interested in this topic, you absolutely need to check out her book. She's a Pulitzer Prize finalist and has written about topics including Area 51, DARPA, and extensively about the CIA. In Phenomena, she explains the link between a strange organization Himmler founded and what would be the early seeds of the CIA's own fascination with seemingly paranormal activities. Though Hitler himself had open disdain for Himmler's supernatural leanings, he entrusted him with a terrifying level of power, and Himmler used this power to seek the answers he was looking for. 
1935, Himmler founded a mysterious group called the NNRB, who, in addition to perpetuating Hitler's racist ideology, also sought to find the, quote, hidden knowledge Himmler so desperately sought, and he would spare no expense to do it. Starting that year, Himmler and his henchmen would conduct a vast expedition spanning from Finland, Sweden, Italy, France, and many other far-off places in search of the clues that Himmler thought would help them access the secrets that he'd become obsessed with. The organization was vast, but it was a branch known as the, quote, Survey of the So-Called Occult Sciences that seemed of particular interest to its founder. While on their expeditions, Himmler sought out ancient mystical texts and was often driven by folklore and legends. His team would travel to remote regions of Scandinavia and Europe to record spiritualists, alleged sorcerers and witches, and people who were thought to possess extrasensory abilities. But his motives weren't anthropological. Himmler wanted power. Along with the ancient text, he was also looking for physical artifacts that he believed could be used to unlock some sort of magic. He was said to have a particular fascination with what's known as the Spear of Destiny, that's the actual spear used to pierce the side of Christ as he hung on the cross. Even if you're not a religious history buff, there's a good chance you've heard of it. It's shown up in movies like Constantine, there's an Indiana Jones comic book series based on the hunt for it, and the prequel to the famous early 90s computer game Wolfenstein 3D is actually called Spear of Destiny. The objective is to retrieve the spear and kill as many Nazi demons as possible. But Himmler's fascination wasn't simply because of the relic's lore. He believed that magic itself could be turned into a weapon of war. And he had assembled a collection of strange artifacts and writings after years of hunting them down with brutal force. However, when the Nazis eventually fell in 1945, covert American officials began to scour Berlin for any intelligence they could find, and they stumbled into a strange bombed-out villa. According to Jacobson, in the villa's basement, there was evidence of some very, very dark happenings. There's a human skull, strange symbols associated with the medieval Teutonic Order, which is also known as the Order of the Brothers of the German House of St. Mary in Jerusalem. There were also piles of ashes that seemed to suggest that the basement had been home to odd rituals. But they also made another discovery in that basement, a massive trove of documents outlining Himmler's paranormal research. Again, even Hitler was dismissive of Himmler's odd fascination with the supernatural, so it's unclear how seriously the American forces took them at the time. That is, until several years later when they discovered that more of Himmler's documents had also been found, and these ones had fallen into the hands of America's rising new enemy, the Soviet Union. In an interview with the military outlet Task and Purpose, Jacobson says that it's here where we can track down the beginning of the American government's fascination with the paranormal. She explained, When we learned that they were working in this area, you could say that this is the origin story of the psychic arms race. Though Himmler and the Nazis had been defeated, in the years following World War II, a new conflict emerged, and in the Cold War, both sides feared what the other might be capable of. The revelation that the Soviets had interest in Himmler's research sparked fears that a, quote, psychic arms race was on, and that America had already fallen behind. And, perhaps just as concerning, was the USSR's approach to their research. Unlike Himmler, the Soviets weren't occultists. Famously antagonistic to religion, their interest wasn't in supernatural hidden knowledge. They were more pragmatic in their quest, and sought to understand the limits of the human mind and consciousness, and how it can be manipulated. What many in the West called parapsychology, the Soviets referred to as psychotronics. 
They believe that there might be non-paranormal methods to activities like remote viewing, and they were willing to spare no expense to uncover them. When you read about their findings in their research, you get an idea of where Serge Manas, the investigative reporter and conspiracy theorist from last episode, might have gotten some of his ideas. And in 2013, officials got a look at just how serious the Soviets were. A researcher named Serge Kernbach at the Research Center of Advanced Robotics and Environmental Science in Stuttgart, Germany, scoured declassified Russian technical documents and discovered the massive scope of the Soviet research. According to Kernbach, between 1917 and 2003, the Russians dumped as much as a billion dollars into their endeavor. They believe that the human mind might have the ability to use high-frequency electromagnetic radiation to manipulate objects and transmit information. Here's how Kernbach describes his research in the report's overview. He says, The report surveys unconventional research in Russia from the end of the 19th until the beginning of the 21st centuries. The overview is based on open scientific and journalistic materials. The unique character of this research and its history, originating from the governmental programs of the USSR, is shown. End quote. In case you're wondering, Kernbach and his report have some credible advocates. It was published by Cornell University. Maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't help myself there. <laughs> but even at the time, there were those who dismissed the kinds of experiments Kernbach describes as fringe pseudoscience. But there's a case that can be made that they might have actually been on to, well, something in their quest to understand consciousness and its ability to be manipulated by outside forces. After all, just this week, Elon Musk, the billionaire founder of Tesla, said that his company Neuralink had made an incredible breakthrough with their brain-computer interface technology. In an interview with The Good Time Show on Clubhouse, Musk said that the company, quote, already got a monkey with a wireless implant in their skull and with tiny wires who can play video games using his mind. He added this, quote, One of the things we're trying to figure out is can we have the monkeys play Pong with their mind? That would be pretty cool. Sure, Musk is ambitious. After all, this is a guy who created another company that maintains one of the stated goals of colonizing Mars. But his technology isn't too far removed from the, quote, psychotronics the Soviets seem so interested in. On the topic of Musk, there's one other noteworthy wrinkle to the stories in today's episodes. Werner von Braun, the controversial rocket scientist who had the odd encounter with Yuri Geller in the 1970s, was also known for dabbling in writing. In 1952, more than 20 years before Elon Musk would be born, von Braun wrote a book called The Mars Project. In it, he goes into detail about what it would take to travel to and colonize Mars, much like what Elon Musk has said that his company SpaceX will do one day. In the book, Von Braun says that once there, humanity will set up its own sort of government on the planet, instilling a leader that will hold a special title. So, what did Von Braun say we would call the leader of the Mars colony? He chose a really interesting title. He said we would call him Elon. Sure, this is probably just a really, really weird and oddly specific coincidence, and not evidence of some sort of strange premonition, right? Well, that might just be a matter of what you want to believe. So, what was America's response when they learned about the Soviet's strange research at the dawn of the Cold War? Well, that will take us to a remote area of Mexico and a mysterious 45-room mansion on the coast of Maine that was home to some of the strangest experiments ever conducted in the United States. That's next time on Hiding Something.
Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcast. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.